0: John chapter 13. I just saw, you know, like getting our bearings, looking at where we let off, left off last week after Jesus had washed the feet of his disciples that we kind of pick up the tail end of, uh, of the story here. And so let's pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 13. And I'll read through till our text this morning, which starts in chapter 21. So verse 12 says this, When he had washed their feet, He put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you, done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Good stuff. We, uh, we've been looking at the Gospel of John. And what's interesting about the Gospel of John is this. 21 chapters, like basically half of it is committed to telling the story of Jesus last week leading up to the crucifixion. And then if you divide that in half, so like a quarter, almost a quarter of the book of John is committed to telling us about the last essentially 24 hours leading up to the cross. And we're here kind of in this part of the text, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all telling us about this final evening that Jesus spent with the 12. It's the night before the Passover when Jesus would be crucified. And he secretly met with these men whom are his 12 disciples. And they've slipped away. They've gotten away from the crowds. They're in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem spending, and, and Jesus is spending his final hours with these men who had spent three years with him, serving him, being discipled by him, uh, being sent out on mission by him. And, and and so naturally, you know, these are his closest friends and he desires to spend his final hours with these men who had been on his side all these years, you know. They'd sent him out. Jesus had given these guys authority. That's what the scripture tells us. They'd been sent out to preach the kingdom of heaven to announce its coming. They'd been used in healings, used in the miraculous. They'd been used in the casting out of demons and the healing of sick. And they had announced the kingdom of heaven and Jesus had given these men authority. And now here they are together on this final night and And you read this text, and it's troubling as you read it to discover. And and I mean, we have the benefit of kind of knowing the story here, but it's troubling to realize that one of them who had done all of these things alongside of Jesus, who had done all of these things alongside the the other 11, was not really one of them. He was a traitor, he'd been the money keeper. He had handled the finances. You know, when people gave money to Jesus or gave money to the disciples, it was him who handled the money and he looked after, you know, buying the necessities and running the books and helping the poor along the way. He was their treasurer. And in all that he had done, the miraculous, the preaching of the kingdom, the handling of the finances, the hanging with Jesus, the hanging with the other 11... All that he appeared to be was not true because he was not born again. Uh, He did not have eternal life. The kingdom of heaven was not his home. And it's terrifying to me to think about Judas. You know, when we talk about Judas to go, wow, how does that happen? Have you ever wondered that about him? Like that you can be that close to Jesus for three years and be alongside of him and and yet be totally lost in your sin and eventually become a betrayer of the king? And Judas is like, you know, he's like this incredible warning to us in scripture. And I go, wow, what was in this guy's heart? You know, certainly when you think about Judas, it's not like, okay, well, was he evil from the beginning? Like, like was he evil from the beginning? I don't think so. I think I think Judas was like, a sinner like you and a sinner, sinner like me was an ordinary man and he let Satan have a foothold in his life. He was one of the twelve. Jesus had chose him. Jesus, this very night, like we saw last week, Jesus had actually got down on his knees in front of them, and washed his feet and after washing his feet and the rest of the twelve, as we just read, Jesus put on his outer garments, he resumed his place, And this is Judas in their midst. And so Jesus says to them, I've given you an example that you should do as I've done for you. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But then Jesus goes on to tell the 12, hey, and by the way, there's a traitor in our midst. And in Yeah, they knew this. They knew this. There was enemies on the outside. I mean, like everybody, they've recognized that now, that the the leadership of Israel was against Jesus. In front of them were men, enemies who they could identify, whom they had been avoiding over different periods of time, who were plotting to kill Jesus. And we can understand that as we read the Gospels, that, that there was enemies in front of Jesus and the 12. But Jesus identified on this night, the night that he would be betrayed, that there was a traitor in their midst. And Jesus did this. He quoted Psalm 41 verse 9 where David recorded that there, there was a man who had eaten bread with him, who'd shared his table, and that man had raised his foot against him and kicked him. That's how David described it. David was betrayed by a friend, a man who had been at the table with him. And the son of David, Jesus, the son of David, was going to have the same experience. And so Jesus told him, the same thing that happened to my ancestor David is going to happen to me. One who has been eating my bread is going to lift his heel against me and he's going to kick me. And it's not going to be an enemy in front that you can see and that you can identify and you know is coming. Rather, it's going to be like one who stabs you in the back. One who should be with me will kick me. He says, I'm telling, look at verse 19. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. You know, I was just thinking about betrayal. The thought of betrayal is devastating, right? Like maybe you've gone through some sort of betrayal in your life at some point in time or whatever it is. Betrayal is devastating. And the thing that is devastating about betrayal is, is that it's like being stabbed in the back. It's like, it's not the enemy in front of you. It's someone who's on your side. It's like a friend. It's someone close to you. It's it's someone who's on the inside, and what you don't know is that they're an enemy when they betray you because you've, you've trusted them. You've counted them as a friend. And that's the thing about betrayal is that it's like a blind side. It's a stabbing in the back, and... Such a betrayal has the ability to just like rock you to the core of your life. How could I have never seen this guy? How could one who was my friend? How could one whom I've I've loved? How could one whom I've sat at the table with do this to me? How could I've been so blind? And betrayal can rock your confidence. And the disciples, I think about the the twelve they. They have a mission that they're about to begin. They didn't didn't comprehend. They hadn't come to grasp that that Jesus was the cornerstone and they were the foundation upon which the church would be built. They were going to be mighty. These men were going to be mighty in the building of the kingdom of God. They're ordinary men, regular people like you and I no different from anybody in this room, they were just ordinary men whom Jesus had picked and they didn't comprehend it yet, but they were standing in the shadow of the cross and God was gonna do mighty things through these men and their, their teacher and their Lord was going to die and it would rock them to the core and on top of it all, they didn't know that right in their midst there was one who was gonna betray them all, betray the master. And so you have to imagine this. Like imagine for a moment these two things on top of one another. Your master dies, and as much as he's told you, you haven't clearly grasped that this was going to happen. And one in your midst totally betrays you. You find out he was a thief, that he was a liar all along, that he wasn't what he seemed to be. Judas would betray them. And these men could not see that either was coming. They couldn't see that it was coming. So Jesus told them to protect them. That's what what the text tells us here. That he wanted to protect their faith. That he wanted to protect their confidence in him. He said, I'm telling you this before it happens so that when it does happen, you will know that I am. You'll know. I want you to know. That's a divine title that Jesus applies to himself. That I am who I am. Jesus is telling him, I'm God. I know what is going to happen beforehand, and I'm telling you so that when it happens, you'll know I am. It's like he's saying, you know, when when I'm betrayed, you'll be surprised. It's going to catch you. Off guard, it's not going to be what you suspected. But you don't need to allow your spirit to be, you know, destroyed. You don't need to allow, you don't need to have your confidence in me shattered because I've told you these things beforehand and I am who I am. You're my royal ambassadors. I want you to be confident. This is what this is about. This is about the confidence of the disciples. Jesus actually says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He's saying this: don't let this dreadful, awful, tragic thing that is about to happen destroy your confidence in me. Don't let it destroy your confidence in the call of God that's upon your life. Look, these, these men needed to know that Jesus knew all that was coming because, because they didn't see it coming. And they needed to know their confidence in him could be secure, that it didn't need to be destroyed, that Jesus could be trusted. In fact, Jesus was going to use this betrayal to bring forth the glory of God. And you know, I just think about the enemy of our souls, the evil one. You know, he loves to take the betrayals that happen in our lives, the disappointments, he loves to get his hands on the unwanted surprises that we've had happen. You know, the things that we couldn't control, the things that were like just, wow, I didn't see this coming, the knife in the back or whatever it is. And the, the enemy loves to take those and say, see, see, where was Jesus? He doesn't really love you. You can't really trust him. Jesus isn't really worthy of your trust. Look at the call of God on your life. It's not real. You know, it's just like you you made it up. It's not, your, your confidence in the gospel, the gospel doesn't deserve your confidence. And Satan wants to do this. He wants to shake the confidence of God's people and God's church. And the message that the disciples needed to hear that night that Jesus was going to be betrayed was this. Your confidence in me and your confidence in my call upon your lives is justified because I am God. I have you. I have this. I've got it under control. There's things that I'm doing. It's in my hands. And the disciples needed to know that their confidence in Jesus and his call upon their lives was justified because he is God. And I just say to you, church, don't be shaken. Don't be shaken. Like, you know, whatever happens tomorrow happens. The Lord's like in control and all these. Don't be shaken. Don't let your confidence in Jesus be shaken. Don't let your confidence in the gospel be shaken. Don't let your confidence in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior be shaken. It's justified. You have put your trust in the right place when you put your trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen? You can be confident. Salvation is real. Eternal life is real. In his Father's house are many mansions. And he said, I'll go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, I am coming back and I will take you to be where I am, that you may be where I am. Don't be shaken. Jesus said, He's going to tell these guys, we're not even going to get to it this morning. John chapter 40, He's going to tell them, I'm the way, I am the truth. And I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Oh, there's an enemy in the front. An enemy in front of you, don't let your confidence be shaken. Though he whom shared bread with you betray you and knife you in the back, let not your confidence be shaken. He says, I'm telling you these things before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that i am and so you know i think about this text i'm like man the message is this like don't let the enemy of your soul tell you that jesus is not worthy of your trust jesus is worthy you can run to jesus the name of jesus is a strong tower and the righteous run to that tower and they find refuge in that tower whatever comes Storms come, strife come, dread, disappointment, betrayal. The righteous run to their strong tower. Run to Jesus. And the disciples needed to know these things beforehand. But I don't, they didn't, they definitely didn't catch. They they didn't, they didn't get it. Even as Jesus told them these things. Or, or, Whether they didn't didn't get it or they didn't believe it, They, they couldn't fathom this. They could not fathom that one of them would betray him. They struggled. They were struggling to believe the word of God just like you and I struggle to believe the word of God. And so verse 21 says this, that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. You know, as I read that, I think, you know, Jesus could see with his physical eyes, these guys don't believe what I'm saying. I've told them there's a betrayer, and they don't believe me, and they could see this, that Jesus was troubled in his spirit as he communicated these things. He was agitated. This is the same agitation that he had at the tomb of, of Lazarus. And he said this to him. He said, I, I tell you the truth. I can see that you don't believe. I'm telling you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And as we read this, you know, what we're getting from John is an eyewitness account. He's there. He's, he's present when, when Jesus said these things. And verse 22 tells us that the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. That's crazy, isn't it? I'm like, wow. Doesn't like the dark circles under Judas' eyes like give him away? And that friggin' nasty mustache that he's got, twirled out like that. And you know, he's like s- doesn't sleep, and he's always out. You know, scheming. He's got that sinister look all over his face all the time, right? No, it's like they didn't know. They didn't know. That's the thing about betrayal. They didn't know where it was going to come from. They didn't know who it was. And we, we read it, you know, we always think this, oh, well, it was obvious, it was Judas. I'm like, guys, they spent three years with him and they didn't know it was him. The disciples were uncertain of who Jesus spoke. And the other gospels actually tell us that they began to question. They said, is it I? Is it I, Lord? They like started going around the room, Is it me? Like they suspected themselves before they suspected Judas. Verse 23 says, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, of whom he was speaking. Of course, you know, it's like they don't have the nice dining room tables like we have, okay? It's a different culture. Not sitting in chairs, they're reclining, At a table. At table, it says. Which I always love that. You know, it's like, it's an interesting thing. I don't know if you see it in there. You see this a lot in the Gospels. It doesn't say they were at the table. It says they were at table. It's not that they were like at an object. It was something they were experiencing together. They were fellowshipping. They were eating together. This was intimate. They were leaning in on one another because there's no chairs to support you. Their, Their feet, we're at the table. Thank goodness Jesus had washed them. They're, they're leaning on one another and sharing their food together. And, and it's interesting to me that John, John doesn't mention himself by name. This is John who's speaking. He, he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. I want to read it for you again. One of his disciples, whom Jesus love, loved, was reclining at, ta- at table... At Jesus' side. It's John, he's speaking of himself. Doesn't mention himself by name. He says, I'm the, the one whom Jesus loved. thinking about that, you know, I've never like referred to myself that way. Have you ever referred to yourself that way? The one whom Jesus loved. I, you know, I, I like tend to think about myself and go, oh, that's the, the one that Jesus tolerates. <laughs> You know, I think about you and I think, oh, you're the one that Jesus endures. No, just kidding. <laughs> or, y- you, know, you know, Jesus like looks at me or we feel like he looks at us and goes, well, I guess, you know, that's the one I'm stuck with, you know. He's not the brightest. He's not the quickest, but, you know, I'll do what I can with this slow learner. No, look at what John says. You know that Jesus loves us, that Jesus loves you. John recognized it. Jesus' love for him formed the identity of his life. Jesus' love for him was the source of his self-worth. Jesus' love for him gave him an understanding of his value and his purpose. Jesus loved him. And Jesus loves you. And that can be the source of your identity and your value and your purpose, the love of God for you. And you know, just like the enemy wants to come and rock your confidence in Jesus and his gospel, he wants to come and do this too. He wants to rock your confidence in the love of Christ for you. He'd love to undermine your confidence in the love of Jesus. He'd have you think the Lord is tolerating you The Lord's putting up with you, but that's enough, you know. One more time, you're done. He'd love you to think that, you know, your value, I don't know. You know how he comes. He wants to shatter your confidence in the love of God. The enemy would have you think that the Lord is putting up with you and like an unwanted guest, you know, often we're doing this, we're stabbing ourselves in the back. You don't need Judas. And I'd say to you this morning, man, like, let it be settled in your heart. Tear down the arguments of self-doubt and the lies and the work of the evil one. Settle it in your heart. The lies of our enemy are not true. Jesus Christ loves you. God loves you. God sent his one and only son to save you. And I think like John, we should refer to ourselves as the ones that Jesus loves the one whom Jesus loved. There's Johnny's leaning against Jesus at table. And so Simon Peter gives him the signal. Ask him, find out. Who's he talking about? Who is the betrayer? So we read in verse 25. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. John asked, who is it, Jesus? Jesus says, it's the one to whom I give this morsel of bread after I've, I've dipped it. Then he, then he dipped it. He handed it to Judas. The gospels actually paint this picture when you, when you read all of them, that Jesus is sitting at the table and on one side of him is John leaning against him. And on the other side of him is Judas. Judas is sitting at a place of prominence at the table, sitting at a place of honor. Jesus, Judas was so close to Jesus, it's interesting to think about this, that he could literally raise his heel and kick him. I wonder if it happened actually. I wonder if like, you know, unintentionally, whatever, he like kicked Jesus at the like he maybe he jumped when Jesus handed him the bread and he struck him with his heel and Jesus identified him and and when he took the bread you, you read something in this text something that makes you want to shudder doesn't it make you shudder that Satan entered him he took the bread and Satan entered him and Jesus said to him, What you're about to do, do quickly. I love that because even though Satan's present there at that meal, and even though Satan had entered into Jesus, it was into sorry, into Judas, it was Jesus who was in charge. It was all unfolding on the father's timetable. And before the disciples even realized what was going on, Jesus commanded Judas, get out, get out of here, and get on with it. It was a command. This is a command. The disciples hadn't clued in yet. You know, they, they, they still held Judas in high regard. Text tells us, John's telling us, you know, imagine the conversations that they had as they put this puzzle together later on. said, man, I thought he was going out to like get some stuff for Passover. Yeah, I thought Jesus was sending them out to like give some money to the poor or something. Because Judas was the financial treasurer among them, and he looked after, you know, the money bag. So it must have had something to do with that. But John noticed that when Judas went out, that it was night. Did you catch that in the text? There, it's interesting that John says that it was night. John John noticed that when Judas went out, the sun had actually gone down and it stood out to him that the darkness had come over the land. Remember Jesus said this? The daylight won't be with you much longer while it's here. I'm the light of the world. While I'm here with you, walk in the light. He called himself the light of the world and when Judas went out the door, John saw that that the darkness of night had descended upon the land and it stood out to him. It was night. It was more than just an observation. Judas is so interesting. Isn't he like... Judas is this guy that brings up these questions for us. We're like, well, what about his free will? What about predestination? What about God's foreknowledge? How did all of these things work together? Was he predestined to do this? Was he like a tool in the hand of Jesus? Was he just a robot for God? Like what was the deal with Judas? And I don't know, like, I'll just be straight up. I like, I don't want to cop out of this, but I just like personally find those discussions not very interesting. I don't know, I I was thinking about it. I should do a better job with that as your pastor, but it's just the truth. Um, But you know, I think this, that that Jesus knew beforehand what Judas was gonna do. The scripture, the Old Testament prophesied that this would happen to the Son of Man, the Messiah. Jesus said this, he said, the Son of Man must be betrayed, it has to happen. It's God's purpose. It's God's plan. So on that level, it's like totally... Predestined, but I would say this, God didn't make Judas do anything. And we'd love to paint him into that corner. Say, well, but, but God did not make Judas do anything. Just because God is predestined and God has foreknowledge doesn't make, make a person do something. Like, you know, at my house, we have these vermin, deer. They come into my yard, like they come into yours, and they like eat my flowers, and they eat the buds on my trees, and I'm like, I used to think that they were really cute, and I wish that I could have them on the dinner table once in a while. But generally, I'm like, wow, there's no benefit to these creatures. They just like destroy my yard, and uh, they're a nuisance. And we have a seven pound dog, Molly, who thinks that she's 70 pounds. And, you know, sometimes the deer come into our yard and I see them before Molly's seen them. And uh, with my foreknowledge, I know how this is going to play out. Okay? If I let her out the door, she's going to chase those deer and go down the street. If she's at the glass door and she spots them, she's going to bark, she's going to huff, she's going to puff, she's going to prance around our house like she's like, a beast If the glass door is open she's going to go out on the deck some of you seen her do this she goes through the spindles of our deck and out onto the woodshed roof and she stands at the edge of the roof and barks at the deer Look at I know what she's going to do beforehand but did I make her do it <laughs> No I didn't make her do it I just knew I also know this there's lots of things that I know are going to happen beforehand Like I know the sun is going to come up tomorrow Do I make the sun come up? I don't make the sun come up. I don't make it happen. Look at Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. Jesus didn't make him do it. God had a plan, but Judas was responsible for his actions before God. Judas was responsible. And Judas was like, let's get the picture clear on Judas here. Judas was not a man who made one wrong decision the night he took a piece of bread from Jesus and Satan entered him. Judas got on this path a long time before that. This was just another decision on the path that Judas had been treading for a very long time, friends. Judas had been helping himself to the money bag. He had complained about perfume that was poured out on Jesus' feet and he masked the whole thing with his concern about the poor. But the truth was he was a greedy man. He never told the disciples, you know what? I probably shouldn't be the treasurer. Like I love you guys and I got to like fess up. I probably shouldn't be the guy handling the money because I can't be trusted. I have like a problem with greed. This job should go to somebody else. No, what did he do? He worked himself into a position of authority. He worked himself into a role amongst the 12 where he could have access to the money and he helped himself. He was a thief. Judas knew that there was money on Jesus' head, 30 pieces of silver. Satan tempted him. You know, Judas... You could make a lot of money. Just hand Jesus over. The the devil had already sowed the thoughts in his heart and he had been entertaining it for a long time when he made his way to the final fork in the road. That night Jesus handed him a piece of bread. Jesus didn't get Judas to the fork in the road. Judas got himself there he got himself there with the pattern of decisions that he was making along the way and you know i would say this i would just say this look i don't know how to how to settle discussions on predestination and free will but i know this here's what i can control in my life and here's what you can control in your life little decisions church little decisions Because the little decisions set the course and the path of your life. Little decisions form your character. Little decisions form the direction that you're going. The decisions you make when no one is looking, God is looking. He's watching. He sees all things, He knows all things, you know. I used to have a teacher. She would say this. Remember, some of you guys remember June Wilson. I remember June Wilson teaching at Alfrey for so many years. And June would say this line. It would stick to me, grade eight to twelve. She'd say, "The real you is the one when no one's looking." I'd be like, "Ooh, that hurts. I don't like that one. I don't like that person." It's a little decisions. Now the devil would take that and use that to condemn you. Says, see, see what you are. Why would you be confident in your salvation? Why would you trust that Jesus loves you? See, see what you are. But the Holy Spirit would take that and he would use it to motivate you. He said, get up now. Let's go. Onward, Christian soldier. Let's go for Jesus and for his glory and for his name. Get up. Get up. Make right decisions. The scripture says that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God's holy. Our God is holy. He's holy and he sent his son to die for us and in his grace he's done this. He saved us. In his grace and he'll be true to his character. His word tells us that his thoughts towards us outnumber the sand on the seashore. You know when we think about the Lord there's no one like the Lord. No one, nothing can be compared to the Lord. He's holy and yet he does this. He calls us to be like him. It says, be holy as I am holy. And we have his spirit. And we have his word. And we have one another. And it's the little decisions that make our character. And God's word says that he's provided everything we need. Everything you need for life and for godliness through your knowledge of him who did what? Who loved us. That's what the word says through your knowledge of him who loved us. And Jesus loves you. You are the ones that Jesus loves. You can refer to yourself as John referred to himself. The one Jesus loved. What this text tells me is this. Now live like it. Live like you're the ones he loves. And it happens in the little decisions. You know, John, I think about John or Peter or Andrew, or any of these knobs that were around the table. They were not perfect men. They were not perfect people. They were ordinary. They were regular. They were backwater, most of them. Flawed. And Jesus knew it, and he loved them, and he took them as his own, and he did an awesome work in them, just like he wants to do in us. Verse 31 says... When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I read this and you instantly get this sense that when Judas left, something in the room changed, like the atmosphere changed. On a human level, like Judas is about to unleash disgrace, humiliation on Jesus, but Jesus said, you know, well, God's plan, God's plan was that the son was about to bring glory to the father, that the father was about to be glorified and Jesus was the one who was gonna glorify him. And Jesus speaks to the disciples here and all of a sudden there's tender care. Look at what he calls them. He calls them little children. Grown men, working men. Calluses and all, little children. Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going. You cannot come. Look at verse 34. I love the great verses. A new commandment I give you, I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, Guys, my kids, man, my my children. I'm not going to be with you much longer. So I want you to do this, I want you to stick together. You stick together, you love one another. Uh, I'm commanding you, this is a new commandment. Stick together, love one another. And it's, it's new, yeah the Old Testament tells us love God. The Old Testament tells us love our neighbor. But Jesus makes everything new here. It's a new commandment because he says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. It's a command. A command. You know, it's like interesting. Like our culture, our world thinks that like love is a feeling. Say stupid things like love is love, which I don't even know what that means. I'm sorry, but I don't. And some people think that love is this this feeling, and that love is something that you can't command. This is interesting. Jesus commands love. That means that love is a choice. That means that love is an action. Jesus said this is the mark of his disciples. His disciples choose to love one another. And he he says that when his disciples choose to love one another that it's a demonstration to the world that they are his people, they're his, that they belong to him. Love for one another is the thing that convinces the world that we belong to Jesus. Love. Like, I I mean, you consider our group. This is not usual, right? This is not normal in the world. For a group of people like this to gather and have unity and have peace and have love and the presence of God with them. This only happens in one place, the church. In all the world, what we're experiencing right here only happens in the church. That a group of people that can come together were racially different, culturally different, economically different, politically, let's not go there, All of these things are secondary to us, aren't they? They're all secondary. Because what's number one? Jesus. And because we love Jesus, we love one another and we want to love like he loves us. We love Jesus and we choose to love one another as an an act of obedience and following the commands of the Lord. And it's it's not manufactured. Look at what you experience here with the love of God's people is not manufactured it might not be perfect look it's not perfect let's let's be honest it's not perfect but what it is not is fake it's not fake it's not we love Jesus and we're seeking to love one another as we have been commanded to do and when the world comes into our midst when the unbeliever comes into our midst they can argue with the message they can argue with the preacher they go i don't like that guy Whatever they want to argue with, they can argue with it. That, that worship leader, this, that, whatever. Whatever they want to argue with, they can argue with. But what they, can, they can argue about the politics. They can argue about what those people believe. They can argue about whatever. What, what, you know what they can't argue about? They cannot argue about the love of God that they sense when they watch the people of God. Can't argue with it. Jesus says, when the world sees this, they'll know you're truly my disciples. They'll see that we love one another and they'll be convinced these people are really those Jesus people. They follow him. And we're to love one another as Jesus loved us. That's That's a high task, isn't it? Like, whoa, sick. Sometimes that like calls us out of our comfort zone. Sometimes that calls us to do things we don't want to do. You know, when I think about Jesus' love for his disciples, I, I, I never read once in the scripture that Jesus criticized his disciples. Do you ever read of them doing that? He never criticized his disciples. He was loyal to them to the end. When they needed rebuke, you know what he did? He did it in love. He told them the truth in love. wasn't criticizing them was speaking truth to them. When they needed patience, he was patient. You know, I think, about, I think about this text and you know what I feel bad for? I feel bad for Christians who pack up and move from church to church to church. Is they get ripped off. Like they totally get ripped off. They miss out. They miss out on the blessing of being a part of a body and the mess and the like trouble and the inconvenience and like sorting out your stuff together they, like, miss out. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And now Peter pipes in. You got to love Peter. I love Peter because I'm just like Peter. You're like Peter. Like, w- these guys are in the scriptures for a purpose to say, look at there you are. You fit in this story. Jesus is talking about love. Peter's not listening. He's not listening. He's concerned about one thing that Jesus said. He said he's going away. So he doesn't hear anything. So there's 36. It's, look at this. It's so beautiful. You know, love one another. Oh, it's just so wonderful. Look at Peter, verse 36. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Ouch. Jesus loved Peter. Did he criticize him? You loser. You know what you're going to do tonight? You jerk. He didn't. He spoke the truth to him in love. Peter, you're going to, will you really lay down your life? Truly, truly, I'm telling you, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before this night's over, before the rooster crows. Peter was insulted. You know, Peter was insulted when Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't come. He's like, what are you talking about? What do you mean I can't come? I'm like, I'd do anything for you, Jesus. I would lay down my life for you. And Jesus says to him, Peter, look it. I know you better than you know yourself. (laughs) And at the first sign of trouble, you're going to deny me. In front of a little servant girl, Peter, you're going to, it'll start. And you'll deny me three times. You know, moments before when Jesus had said there was a traitor in their midst, and they'd gone around the table. Peter asked, Is it me? Lord, is it I? Is it me, Lord? Am I the one? And now the Lord tells him, Peter, he'll deny me. And I think Peter's heart was really troubled by this. We miss it because there's a chapter division. I think Peter was deeply troubled by this before it ever happened. You know, we, we, we see the remorse on the backside when we read the gospel accounts. But I think Peter's heart was troubled and we know it because look at the very next thing that Jesus says and we'll just touch down into chapter 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me In my father's house. Are many rooms, if it were not so, I would not have, would I not have told you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be, take you to myself that you may be where I am also. And you know the way to where I am going. You know, I think about Judas and Peter and this passage and the 12, and to me it's like encouraging Because sometimes I look in the mirror like you look in the mirror. I go, man, Lord, my face sucks. I'm weak, Lord. I'm like struggling. I'm like Satan's got the upper hand on me. I'm like not confident. And we can feel like Judas. We go, wow, I'm not like any further along than Peter or anybody else around that table. But to me, this text is encouraging for this reason. I want to point it out to you. As we know so much so well about the disciple, if the Lord can use men like this, I wonder what he can do here. Peter afraid to speak. Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to make you a rock. It's a little decisions, friends. It's the little decisions, and you know, if I'm making decisions, if you're making decisions and choices like Judas, say to the Lord, Lord, I need you to get me on track. Get me on track, Lord. Lord, I know what those things are. I repent of it. I turn from it, Jesus. If you're like Peter, and Lord, I'm weak, please do not leave me to myself. I need you, Jesus. I need you. I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. I want the world to see that I love you and I love your people. Would you guys stand with me?